The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world, but through the prism of our Catholic social teachings. We look at a variety of topics. This week, we're going to look at um, some pretty serious topics. Uh, We're going to look at gun violence, uh, and we're going to look at the threat of nuclear war. Those are not very light topics, but they're very, very important topics. And again, from our Catholic perspective, some of the things that are very uh, important are people's safety and order. A person's human dignity cannot be protected or enhanced if they are constantly in the fear of violence and obviously, the issue of nuclear war has discussed a whole lot in a light of variety of topics, but particularly the current war in the Ukraine. Um, Tom, how's your week? How's your week been? It's been good, Monsieur. You know, the weather is uh, is crisp, which I like. It's, uh, you know, there's a very funny meme that goes around. It's sweater weather, which I like sweater weather. <laughs> so I don't like it. I don't like it too cold, but sweater weather is just perfect for me, Monsignor. All right. All right. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, I'm not going to be a little sticklish on this, but is it heavy sweater weather or light sweater weather or sweater sweater weather? How, how do you, how do we determine what kind of sweater? Well, for me, yeah. I mean, for me, until it gets to be really bitter cold, it's not heavy sweater weather. I, I feel, I feel the heat. So for me, like for me to put on like a really heavy duty winter sweater, it's got to be like, it's got to be below, below, below freezing, below 32. So this is more like light sweater weather. Like this is like you'd throw on a sweatshirt or you could throw on like a cardigan. I mean, it's like, uh, it's that light kind of sweater. weather. All right. Well, but, but you know, Tom, I remember um, your dad, your dad, least almost never, even in the (laughs) coldest of days, ever wore a Top coat. He exactly. Would, he would put a, he would always have a suit on, but wouldn't wear kind of a top coat. I I don't think I can remember ever seeing him in one. I'm sure he maybe did it some occasion, but he just kind of weathered the weather. <laughs> he did once a year. You know, I don't honestly, I think we bought him a top coat like one Christmas. Right. I, I don't think he ever wore it. <laughs> okay. I think, I think he did wear a raincoat. He had one of those like old fashioned sort of like um tan color uh, yeah. raincoats and he yeah. used to wear that so that 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 he did that he did have but other than right. that i don't think he ever wore a top coat here so i am i am my father's son okay <laughs> all right um so but he, he, i gotta tell you what what so I'll, i'm gonna share with you a little bit is in these days and you know the work i do at catholic charities we work with a variety of different agencies and programs and you know for the past decade or so pretty much uh, people, you know, wanted to brand themselves, etc. So if you went to an event, you know, they would give you like a little jacket or a or a rain jacket or something, not very expensive, but but kind of nice. And they would have, you know, their logo on it. So if it was this agency or that agency, I got to tell you, Tom, I must have <laughs> twenty of these things in my closet, and like I don't know what to do because, you know, I feel if I throw it out, like I'm throwing out the agency. Right, right. Agency and <laughs> and you know, then I put them in order of like light, 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 mm-hmm. medium, heavy, medium, medium. I mean, depending on you know 
I can go anywhere, I think, from like 35 degrees to 75 degrees <laughs> in, uh, in the in the weight of the of the jackets that I have. But, you know, anyway, uh, anyway, so, uh, <clears throat> Tom, we have our first guest. We do. Yeah, I would say she is in the waiting room. I can bring Good. her in. All right. So okay. why don't we go to our first guest, who is Professor Ramona Lampley. She is the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development. She is the Professor of Law at St. Mary's School of Law in San Antonio, Texas. Professor Lampley, thank you for joining us on Just Law. Senior Sullivan, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with you and with your listeners. So before we get into the topic, um, tell us a little bit about how you got to that kind of August position of the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development. How'd you, how'd you wind up? Did you grow up in San Antonio? Oh, I didn't. Actually, it's an interesting story. I grew up um, in a we rural like it, part. We like interesting stories. <laughs> Thank you. I grew up in a rural part of North Carolina. Um, my grandparents were farmers and had a very um, pleasant childhood uh, in the farm life of North Carolina. I decided to go to law school at Wake Forest University, which is in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, I'm what they call a first-generation lawyer. No one else in my family had ever uh, gone to law school or had been a lawyer. So that was a a great opportunity for me, and I had a tremendous education there at Wake Forest University School of Law. So So, so I'm going to betray my northern bias. Uh, (laughs) Was it a tobacco farm in North Carolina? Oh, actually, it wasn't. They raised a variety of things. It was a dairy farm, but also soybeans and things like that. Um, but you're right, North Carolina did have a history in tobacco, yeah. uh, belied by the name Winston-Salem, which is where Wake Forest sits. But I, I was lucky enough to do quite well in law school, and I was hired to be a clerk for a court of appeals judge on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, Judge Harris Hartz. And I moved all the way out to New Mexico to clerk, clerk for uh, Judge oh. Hartz. Wonderful learning experience. Um, got to see a whole new part of the country. And after that, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to join a law firm in Denver, Colorado. We so, this is, so this is this is like I want to know a little bit behind the scenes stuff since I got yeah, you. Your brother. Sure. So, I mean, my, my you know, as in a lot of things in life, like you have these judges there and then they have clerks like yes. you. Right. <laughs> the judge, I just want to know, do the judges even read the opinions that you guys write? Absolutely. 100%. And it's not even, there are are probably some instances in which a judge relies very heavily on a clerk to research and write opinion. But in my experience, judges write opinions. They read all of the briefs and they are very hands-on in writing opinions. They use clerks to do research, to suggest language, um, but absolutely judges write opinions and absolutely read the work of their clerks. They're extremely hardworking, conscientious individuals um, and a great opportunity. So to can I tell you, work. let me tell, yeah. let me tell you my judge story. Okay. Okay. A judge story. Um, Tom, I don't know if I've told this before. So this is goes back like 4 million years because I'm old and decrepit. So it, it's like 4 million years. I was parked um, at a traffic light in New York city. And I see these three people running out of a supermarket, okay? And they didn't strike me like they were jogging, you know, and like there were two guys and then there was one guy running. 
And so being curious, I followed them. I followed them around the corner. Two of them jumped into a, a kind of a taxi, a gypsy taxi cab. And I followed the cab for, for a couple of blocks. And then it turned and I took down the license plate and everything. And I said, I didn't know if anything was happening. But, oh, I went wow. the, but I went to the police precinct and I said, I don't know if anything's happening, but this just didn't seem right to me. And and they said to me, um, they just, there was just a robbery at the supermarket and they actually shot and killed the store manager. So I I didn't know what I had seen, but I, but I, so well, maybe, maybe bring the story a little bit further up. I don't know, four years later or 18, whatever, when it came to trial, I had to go testify. But here's my real judge story. Um, We were sitting there waiting and, um, and they said, you know, you may have to wait a little while. Well, we get through the morning when I called, then the judge takes like a three hour recess for lunch. Okay. And then they call the medical examiner who does his thing. But me, I'm okay because I'm getting paid. Even But you got three other people here who are losing a day's day salary. So I, so, so I say to the assistant district attorney, I said, I'm not coming back tomorrow unless we get an apology from the judge. Oh, wow. And he yeah. says, do you know who that is? I said, I don't know who it is. The judge name was Burton Roberts, who I, you know, who then they told me was a legend in like doing things his way. I said, you haven't subpoenaed me. I said, he doesn't apologize to them. He doesn't apologize to me, but to them, I'm not coming back. And he said, he'll never do it. I said, your call. He comes back about 10 minutes later and he says, he's going to do it. He's going to apologize. I said, good. So the four of us go in and he begins by saying, the wheels of justice grind slowly. Don't think that I was not doing it. I was reading opinions. I was doing all of this. I wasn't just out for lunch. I didn't believe him. But but but, but so that's my judge story. I, yeah. I, yeah. It was just it's just kind of a, a funny story, which since you mentioned clerking and hard work, right. I just yeah. share it with you and our, our listeners. So anyway, I'm but, sorry that happened to you, but they, well, they really are. Yeah. But I'll cut I'll cut my short story a little short, too. Okay. I decided after uh, many years of private practice that I wanted to teach at a law school, which had been my dream since I went to law school. Um, because I had great professors and great mentors. I was drawn to the intellectual life of a law professor. And I ended up at St. Mary's University School of Law in San Antonio. I've been there for 10 years. Um, I'm a tenured law professor. And then in 2019, the university asked me to be associate dean of academic affairs. I did that for two years, um, helping to manage the law school during the pandemic years, very tumultuous time. And when my time of service was up, the new dean, Patricia Roberts, asked me if I would stay on in a different role of faculty research and development. And I love it. I get to help new faculty develop their scholarship. I get to bring in speakers to improve the intellectual dynamics of the law school. And I get to speak to people like you, Monsignor Sullivan. 
Well, I'm I'm delighted that you took took the time to do it. So sure. let's let's now go to the question of of gun violence and and uh, that and and what we can do about it. So let me let me just kind of lay my cards on the table, okay? And okay. Again, I never went to law school, okay? So so that's why I feel perfectly free to criticize law decisions and all of that because. <laughs> You know, whatever. I mean, I just, if, if you ask, if this is me speaking, okay? I understand we currently have a Second Amendment, okay? I don't think we should, but, but we got it, okay? I also believe, and may he rest in peace, um, that, that the person who wrote the decision, if he could read English better, would have understood that that Second Amendment applied to the militia. I mean, and and so we're now stuck with, again, I'm not a lawyer, so I can say to an opinion to to John Q. Public, that is a complete misreading of what is plain English that is there by some convoluted legal theory. So I, I'm just laying that on the car and I'm not even asking you to respond, but, okay. but you can, you can be free to, but I just want to lay that on the cards when we talk about this gun violence and, and what you're working on. Right. So what are you working on? So let me give you a little bit of background okay. and I'll get to what I am working on. Um, I'm a parent. I'm an educator. I'm a lawyer. I'm a parent to um, three wonderful and beautiful children And back in 2012, when the Sandy Hook massacre happened, I was, I was shocked. Like so many other people in the country, I was horrified and um, grief stricken. And I went home that night and I hugged my two-year-old. I had one child at the time and I vowed that I would put my effort towards making a difference. And I think a lot of us did. Um, And I worked very hard in advocacy after that time, but time passes and you get involved and you become numb. You forget what it was like in that moment. And then um, May of 2022 came along and I was sitting at my kitchen table working on final exams. And I saw a newsfeed come through that students were in lockdown at Robb Elementary. Now, this is not that uncommon. And I thought to myself, this is horrible, but surely the police will resolve the situation. And then we started hearing the horrific details that 19 children were murdered and two teachers were murdered. And I will tell you, Monsignor Sullivan, I was paralyzed with grief and rage, anger, that this kind of senseless loss of life could happen for for days. Um, And I was also scared. I was scared because what these instances of mass shootings tell us is that we have very little control. We have no control of when something like this might happen. And I was scared for my children. Um, And so I recommitted to that vow. I felt disappointed in myself that I had failed those children and that I had failed in doing enough to try to reduce gun violence in the years since Sandy Hook. And 
I sat there in those days and I said, not again. And I know several other mothers in Texas who felt the same way. Not again. Enough is enough. Um, and so I did, I started with what I can do. And I emailed the dean and I asked if we could have a conversation, a community conversation with folks in the university and just give them an open forum to express their grief, to express, express their fear, but also to talk in a civil dialogue about what could be done. And I, I had done this before. I'd done this in um, following the Sutherland Springs massacre in Texas, in which um, 26 people were murdered and 20 people injured in a church, in a church. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Um, the gunman fired 700 rounds in 11 minutes in a church through the windows. Um, so in, in those days, I was teaching at night and I had about 75 students in my civil procedure class. I was trying to teach following the census and I was going nowhere. The, I, had, I had lost the class. Our hearts and our minds were on the tragedy that had happened. So I just stopped and I said, we're going to talk about what happened and I'm going to hear from you. And it was a very moving experience. We heard so much emotion and so much outrage, but we also heard from people who had experience with firearms. I heard from a Iraqi war veteran who had used automatic and semi-automatic weapons, positing that yes, he believed in self-defense, but these were weapons of war and that weapons of war should not be in the hands of civilians. I heard from students who keep multiple firearms in their house for protection and felt very strongly in the right to self-defense in the second amendment but also acknowledge that we have to do something to prevent weapons of mass killing from getting into the hands of deranged individuals. And so I heard a variety of viewpoints after that. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about what triggers fear in the hearts of people when they hear that you're going to take away the right to self-defense. Um, and then we did it again after, after Uvalde and two weeks after Uvalde. And I can't say that it created monumental change, but it did give me information. And I think a lot of people learn from it in our community conversation there at the university. We had a packed room, over hundred seats filled and the Dean and I moderated the conversation. We planned to go for about an hour, but we ended up in that room for over two and a half hours, almost three hours hearing from faculty, from staff, from students who were absolutely grief stricken. And here's some of the comments that people said to me. Um, fear, fear to go to the grocery store. How do we go to the grocery store? How do we go see a movie? How do we go see a basketball game when the fear that someone could leash a torrent of bullets, engage in target practice with living individuals? How do we live under this supposed normal? And you know, as I do, that yeah. this summer was a bloody summer. It was one yep. mass shooting after another. So pervasive fear, anger, and rage that we allow this to go unregulated and that our policymakers will not take action in the face of so much tragedy. Um, I also heard fresh ideas such as we need to follow the money. Consumers should boycott retailers that sell high capacity magazines or sell assault rifles without, um, well, that sell assault rifles, period. And I heard some folks come in with lists of retailers in our region that sold, sold them. So that was a new idea about following the money. Um, I heard from others who came in with an interest 
to hear about change and um, hear about policy proposals, but also felt strongly about preserving their right to protect themselves and as law-abiding citizens to buy firearms, including assault rifles. And one of the useful things that I learned from this conversation is that for someone who feels very strongly about their Second Amendment rights, the phrase assault weapon and assault rifle is very vague. So if if I'm going to go in and, and say something like I support regulation on assault rifles, I'm going to lose part of the audience right away because that's a big, broad term that can encompass very common weapons. And, and I'm not an expert on, on firearms, but I did learn that we have to be more precise with our terminology. Um, and I learned that we can talk about this. We can have civil debate. We can come together with a common purpose of preventing gun violence, but preserving the right of law-abiding individuals to have access to self-defense and that we can learn from each other and a way to move forward. And I personally believe that we have to have more of those conversations. And I've taken that as part of my mission. And so I left there with an action plan that I'm working on right now. And it's you know for the St. Mary's School of Law University to educate and advocate. So part of that will be having speakers who are much more knowledgeable than I on what kinds of firearms there are, on Texas firearm law, what it takes to get a firearm in Texas and why we have this difference in age ranges. Um, I mean, I can speak to the Supreme Court case. I'm a lawyer, but uh, someone who actually is an expert in these areas to talk about what the differences are in the different types of assault weapons and rifles. So to educate. So let me, we're speaking with Professor Ramona Lampley, who is the Associate Dean for Research Faculty Development and Professor of Law at St. Mary's uh, School of Law. And we're speaking about gun violence and what can be done to decrease gun violence. Um, to help me not to get depressed about the fact that we can't seem to get very far in what, again, from my perspective, would be very reasonable um, legislation on this. And and I, I, pardon me, I am a cynical New Yorker. Okay. So that, that anemic thing that they just that they passed in congress like a few uh, you know a few months ago which everybody was hyping as kind of just such a major piece of legislation it did almost nothing so so get me not depressed on today <laughs> okay I, I think we can make progress okay. i absolutely think we can make progress but it is going to take ambassadors of goodwill to present this not this is not a partisan issue this is not a republican democrat issue this is an issue for parents this is an american issue this is an issue just about protecting the innocence of life and that's why this is not a partisan issue but we have to talk hold hold on professor lampley you're saying it shouldn't be oh i firmly believe it and i believe in the hearts of republicans and democrats but it is not well, that's where we have to work for change and we have okay. to engage in that civil dialogue. So yeah. I, I, I love to have conversations with strong defenders of the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. I want to hear from them. What kind of legislation would you like? I know you don't want a bad guy with a gun. I know we have a common goal of preventing 
the bad guys from getting the guns, the mentally infirm from getting the guns. So what would you like to see? And I think we can find common agreement that there should be some regulation on high capacity magazines, red flag laws. These are low hanging fruit. Let's pass a red flag law in the 19 states that have passed red flag laws. These are laws in which you can petition a judge to take a weapon away from someone who is either demonstrating violence or is suicidal or is having some severe mental health issues. When you read what these scenarios in which judges are issuing an order to take the weapon away, they will strike you with horror. Absolutely. The weapons should be removed from someone who's threatening a shoot school shooting or his display telling people that he's going to do that. Absolutely. So red flag laws are a great way to keep the guns out of the hands of a bad guy. And I keep saying bad guy, I'm not meaning to be gender specific, but the reality is most of the the mass shootings, the profile is a male. So we can talk about red flag laws. We can talk about um, universal background checks, strengthening those universal background checks and eliminating the private sale exception. We can talk about even under Bruin. Uh, Bruin Bruin is the Supreme Court case that I think you were referring to, Monsignor Selvin. We can talk about even under Bruin, limiting public carry of firearms in sensitive places. And Bruin does a, a good job of distinguishing the what it calls the core of the Second Amendment, having a firearm for self-defense. It distinguishes that from regulations for weapons of terror. And I think anyone would call these high capacity, rapid fire, semi-automatic rifles, a weapon of terror. Okay. Um, We're speaking with Professor Ramona Lampley from St. Mary's School of Law. Um, Where do you see kind of us making some progress? Or let me ask it this way. Um, What 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 do we what do you see as getting how do we get people in the room as we would say in church where you're not just preaching to the choir right right well i think one thing we saw was um i was a member of a panel just this week in which the archdiocese of san antonio was a participant on the fam- panel so was the sheriff of bear county that drew a big crowd these are folks who are not um you know, notoriously bound by a label of politics. So I think that our religious leaders have to make this an issue. Our law enforcement would like to see some work done here. We have to hear from them. Um, And we have to engage in educational conversations that are are made known to be receptive to people who believe in protecting their Second Amendment rights, because we have to bring them to the table and we have to listen. Now, that doesn't mean that we do nothing. That means we're coming to the table with, I hear you, we, you feel strongly about your Second Amendment rights, but I think we do have a common goal. So how do we get there? How do we increase the utility of universal background checks? How do we can close the loophole? What's it going to take for a red flag law to pass in your state or in Texas? Right. Because look, and, and demonstrating, for example, going through some of those case histories in which a red flag the red flag law has been used in Florida or Colorado, putting those case studies up and say, look at this. Here's a situation in which the, the judge ordered the removal of the gun and read these facts. Do you really want this 
this kid or this person having access to a gun in these situations, look at how effective it's been. Right. Well, <clears throat> I am so glad we had this conversation because I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow some of your hopefulness. Uh, I hope you do. Yes. I, I, I want to borrow some of it, and I, and I do think it's quite, it's really, really important that you're doing it in Texas, which is probably one of those states which, you know, at least whether it's right or wrong, has a reputation for for not being the biggest fan of of gun control legislation. So it seems to me that's the place where the conversations are most needed. Oh, I agree with you. There's a lot of conversation that needs to happen in Texas, but I have to emphasize to you that this is a situation in which I'm all ears. My first obligation is to listen. Right. And I want to hear from those who are, are, are afraid of regulations and skeptical right. of, of firearm regulations or something that I think would have great utility like right. a red flag law. I want to hear from them because right. I recognize that we have to have unity right. on this issue if we are ever going to fix the situation. And, and right. doing nothing, doing right. nothing in the face of this tragedy is not acceptable to me. Right. And I know it's not acceptable to a lot of other Texans and a lot of, of your listeners. So right. I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate um, you doing something too by having right. speakers on to talk about this issue. Right. Thank you so much, Professor Ramoni Lampley, who is the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development, Professor of Law at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's doing more than her fair part to kind of advance safety around gun violence. Thanks for joining us on Just Love. Thank you, Monsignor Sullivan. Great. Okay. Tom, um, I think uh, we should take a break and um, we'll be back in just a moment, but Just Love. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just, and it will be more compassionate. Join us when we come back in a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. This week, we're speaking about, you know, issues that relate to the safety of the human person. We just had a conversation about gun violence, and particularly in Texas, and the possibility of restrictions on guns and uh, how that might come about. And now we're going to turn to kind of an international issue, issue of foreign policy, the Ukraine nuclear weapons, about how that impacts uh, world peace. And our guest is Professor Matthew Bunn, who is at the Harvard University uh, John F. Kennedy School of Government. He is the James Schlesinger Professor of the Practice of Energy, National Security, and Foreign Policy. Uh, thank you for joining us, Professor Bunn. Thanks for having me. Great. So by the time they they say your title, is the, is the semester half over? Pretty much. <laughs> so uh, give, our, give our listeners, before we get into the topic, let them know you a little bit. A little bit about your background, how you got to where you are, and and how you're you're into the topic we're going to talk about. So I've spent my whole career working in one way or another on questions of how to reduce the dangers posed by nuclear weapons, or how to uh, um, address some of the obstacles that have limited nuclear energies ability to be an expandable option for our energy future. Uh, I lead the uh, project on managing the atom at Harvard University, which is the hub of nuclear policy work at Harvard. Um, I have spent time in non-government organizations like the Arms Control Association. I've been a study director at the National Academy of Sciences. I've worked at the Office of Science and Technology Policy on the White House, and I've been a professor here at Harvard for quite some time, all focused on these issues of reducing nuclear dangers and expanding the opportunities from nuclear technologies. So, thank you. That's a, that was a very good and succinct kind of introduction. Um, so right now, since you talked about two of those, two kind of branches, which are you most focused on at the moment, reducing the dangers or expanding the use? Well, we have a crisis situation in the world today with the war in Ukraine. And uh, what's more, um, uh, my group I uh, received a large grant from the MacArthur Foundation a little while ago to put together a global research network on the theme of rethinking nuclear deterrence. So the issues of reducing the dangers posed by nuclear weapons, the dangers of nuclear war, the dangers that nuclear weapons would spread to additional states or even to terrorist groups, those are really my main focus at present. So, okay, so I know 
the work is not finished yet, but give us a little bit of sense of the questions that you're you're rethinking when it comes to nuclear deterrence. Well, I think there are three key reasons to rethink nuclear deterrence. One, uh, it's always been a problematic uh, idea. Um, There are inherent risks in relying on threats of the use of nuclear weapons for your security. There are inherent moral and ethical issues. Two, um, geopolitics in the world is changing. We are moving from what was decades ago a bipolar uh, world into a much more multipolar world, including a multipolar nuclear world. And that involves different dynamics. And then three, technology is changing. Uh, There are all sorts of new technologies that in some cases are non-nuclear in and of themselves, but affect nuclear balances, whether it's uh, cyber or uh, weapons to attack satellites or missile defenses or precision conventional weapons that can be used over strategic ranges uh, and so on. And all of these affect the stability of nuclear balances and the dangers posed by nuclear deterrence. So we're looking at all of those things. We have four working groups. One is uh, on what the theme of beyond nuclear deterrence, what could we imagine a world without relying on nuclear deterrence might look like. Uh, one is on the nearer term question of how, what are the plausible pathways by which nuclear war might occur and how do we reduce the risks on those pathways. Uh, One is on the moral and ethical and legal implications of nuclear deterrence. And one is on uh, emerging technologies and the future of arms control and how can we uh, reduce the dangers posed by these evolving technologies. So let me kind of cut to the chase. Well, I don't know where. So let me let me ask the question this way, okay? And again, I'll I'll betray a little bit of my, I'll put it. I'll put my hypothesis out there, which please I'd like you to refute. I don't think Russia would have invaded um, the Ukraine if it hadn't given up its nukes in 1992. Uh, 94, but uh, so. Uh, There is substantial debate in Ukraine, as you might imagine, over their decision to uh, eliminate the nuclear weapons that were left on their soil when the Soviet Union collapsed. I should say they never had control of those nuclear weapons. They uh, could potentially, with work over time, have taken control of those nuclear weapons. They didn't have the codes and so on. Um, But I think it is impossible to tell a story where Ukraine is like it is today, a uh, friend of Europe, a uh, thriving uh, country uh, with uh, economic ties around the world and nuclear weapons. Um, Ukraine would have been an isolated pariah state had it kept the nuclear weapons. And there's, a, I think, a real danger that we would have seen a war back then uh, because I'm not at all sure that Russia would have allowed uh, a situation where uh, an independent Ukraine at an independent uh, 
nuclear force. And had Russia attacked over that issue at that time, uh, given the United States very high priority on preventing the spread of nuclear weapons, I think you wouldn't have seen the help for Ukraine that it's getting now. So ultimately, I believe Ukraine uh, made the right decision both for the world and for Ukraine. However, obviously, today, that decision is having uh, negative uh, consequences for Ukraine uh, now. So what about the threat that within the past couple of weeks of, of Russia and Putin threatening to use nuclear weapons? So what Putin has said is uh, he has claimed that chunks of Ukraine are now part of Russia and that if anybody uh, attacks these parts of Russia, he'll use all weapons at his disposal, which is clearly intended to include uh, nuclear weapons. I think Putin has put himself in a difficult situation. He politically can't afford to lose, but does not appear to have the means to win. Um, and, uh, I think he's struggling to figure out, uh, what to do at the moment, as you know, Russia is launching major conventional attacks on basic infrastructure in Ukraine and especially energy infrastructure. And I think it may be that Putin's theory is that when people are shivering in the cold and the dark, they may be more inclined to sue for peace. Uh, this winter uh, than they otherwise would be. I think he's wrong in that. Ukraine has shown a remarkable uh, level of unity and determination uh, in this war, as as well as remarkable cleverness and military effectiveness. Um, But Russia still has an immense army. There are a variety of ways that Russia uh, could still escalate without using nuclear weapons. Uh, But I think if Ukraine makes dramatic further progress, there's a real risk Putin will conclude that he can't afford not to use nuclear weapons. I think he hasn't used them so far because he knows there would be huge negative consequences for Russia if he did, but he may judge those consequences less appalling than losing from his perspective. What would the negative consequences be? So first of all, I think almost complete international isolation. I think that even those countries that have been uh, supporting or at least uh, tacitly uh, going along with Russia, like China and India, couldn't possibly support Russia using nuclear weapons to support an aggressive war. I think that you'd see uh, much broader and more severe implementation of sanctions. But I also think uh, there's a pretty wide consensus among a lot of national security people in Washington that political and economic measures alone would not be enough as a response. And that probably some military action, at least including conventional military strikes on some Russian forces perhaps forces in Ukraine or forces at sea or what have you, um, would be uh, likely um, and necessary. Now, that does mean that the United States is, in a sense, entering the war directly. And Russia 
you would have to expect would respond. And then the United States or NATO uh, would potentially be getting hit directly by the Russians in one way or another, probably with conventional or cyber means, not with nuclear means. But still, that then calls Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, you know, an attack on one is an attack on all into play. And things get very nervous making. Um, so uh, this could get quite ugly. Um, and uh, uh, so I remain quite worried. We're speaking with Professor Matthew Bunn, who is the Schlesinger Professor of the Practice of Energy, National Security, and Foreign Policy at Harvard's uh, John F. Kennedy School of Government. Um, so let's let's move a little bit. Thank you for that. It was, I think, very, very enlightening to me. Um, so what are what are the opportunities that you're looking at for expanding the use of nuclear energy positively? Well, the world faces an unbelievable scale of challenge from climate change. Um, I think people don't realize just what a gigantic transformation of our economies is going to be required to get to net zero. And in particular, as you move toward deeper and deeper decarbonization, it becomes harder and harder to rely only on things that are intermittent, like wind and solar. Um, batteries are fantastic for shifting the power from you know the afternoon when it's sunny to the evening, they're not very good for shifting the power from July to February. Um, and so we're going to need low carbon, um, uh, non-intermittent sources. That might be nuclear, it might be fossil with carbon capture, it might be geothermal, the variety of possibilities. But that's, I think, the role that nuclear uh, could potentially play. However, for any energy source to really play a big role in the future, uh, given how much energy humankind consumes and will consume in the future, you have to be talking about terawatts. And so you have to be talking about massive expansion. And right now, the cost of nuclear energy is too high to uh, for it to be attractive for such a massive expansion. There's a public concern that makes it difficult to site uh, nuclear energy plants. Um, and there's a number of other key constraints, but there are ways conceivably that both policy changes and uh, advanced <laughs> technologies that are being worked on now might be able to help address some of those concerns, and in particular, make reactors much, much harder to have uh, any kind of meltdown or radioactive release. So you said two things, which say a little bit more about, and to use a jargon phrase, is nuclear energy considered clean energy? Well, it depends on who you ask. Um, there, uh, in, for example, the uh, Obama energy plan, it did count uh, toward the uh, clean energy requirements that were going to be uh, imposed. Uh, the Trump administration also was uh, very actively promoting 
uh, nuclear energy, as is the Biden administration. Uh, in Europe, it really depends on which country you're in. Um, Germany, after the Fukushima accident in Japan, decided to phase out all of its nuclear energy. Germany is now having a big debate about, is that the right choice given right. their dependence on Russian gas? Right. Um, France, on the other hand, is a nuclear energy enthusiast. So it grows really country by country right. how people think about nuclear as clean. But energy. I think you, you mentioned two two constraints. One is the cost and one is kind of the public um, you know, opinion, et cetera, et cetera. Again, and I don't mean to dismiss public opinion, but public opinion sometimes is not based in reality. So, so when I ask the queen, the, the clean question, do objectively, does it reduce carbon uh, footprint? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, nuclear energy has a very low carbon footprint. It's, it's quite comparable to wind in that respect okay. in terms of, you know, there is some, of course, carbon in either nuclear or wind, you know, in the cement and the steel right. and so on that, that you're using and all that kind of stuff. In the case of nuclear, there's some carbon involved in, you know, right. digging up the uranium and enriching it and so on. Right. But, you know, if you look at a life cycle estimate, it's very low carbon energy. Right. So the constraints are, uh, I mean, in, and, yeah. and by the way, in many countries, especially really big developing countries like China and India, it's not just carbon. It's also the particulates from coal. Those that's the kind of pollution that really kills people. There are millions of people every year who die from breathing fine particulates in the air worldwide. And if you look at some of the great cities of Asia, they're just choking yeah. on their pollution. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, nuclear is clean in that respect as well. So I need some hope. So give me two things that make you a little bit hopeful that we're going to be able to kind of reduce the danger of nuclear weapons and war and or something that, that you're hopeful about in expanding the use of nuclear energy? Well, I will give you more than two. Okay. Uh, there's actually a fair amount of good news on nuclear weapons. So first of all, more than four-fifths of all the nuclear weapons that used to exist in the world have been destroyed. We've been dismantling huh. nuclear weapons by the thousands. Huh. Um, uh, secondly, more than half of all the countries that once started efforts to get nuclear weapons decided to stop. Hmm. Uh, so our efforts to stem the spread of nuclear weapons to additional countries succeed more often than they fail. Less than 5% of the countries in the world have nuclear weapons, and that number hasn't increased for 35 years, which is an amazing public policy success story. Yeah. We added North Korea, but we subtracted South Africa. That's admittedly a terrible trade, but still, <laughs> to have no net increase for that period of time is uh, remarkable. We, more than half of all the countries in the world that used to have material on their soil that could be used to make a crude nuclear bomb if terrorists got hold of it, have gotten rid of it. Um, and uh, a, a bunch of that work was done by a program I initially suggested. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a bunch of good, new good news. We have, over the decades, 
managed to reduce nuclear risks quite substantially. Uh, and that's a sort of existence proof that we can continue to do so in the future if we have wise policy. But boy, figuring out how to end this situation in Ukraine is a real challenging problem. Yeah, it is. Listen, Professor Matt Bunn, thank you so much for your time and your insights. I learned a whole lot. I'm sure our listeners did too. Thanks for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a minute on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love and thank you for being with us this week. We talked about two very important topics, gun violence in the United States, and we just have seen so many deaths as a result of guns. And, you know, no matter what your position is on the expansive use of the Second Amendment, a a constrained use. Certainly, everybody has got to agree 
that the taking of life through guns is just something that needs to be reduced. And okay, I understand the saying that um, people kill people, guns don't, but it's people with guns who kill people. So we have to both change hearts. We have to change a lot of things to make sure that we live more safely and we need to live more safely as a world. And so the, the, the decreasing the possibility or the likelihood of using nuclear weapons is critical and reducing um, the, the pollution in the, in the climate. And so expanding clean nuclear energy is another thing. So we talked about those topics. Thank you for being with us. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back next week. Join us on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 121. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.